Let me introduce our speakers today in some more detail. Professor Wong is a political scientist at Sunway University, where he serves as the deputy head responsible for strategy of the Asia headquarters for the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network, SDSN. His research interest is in political institutions and communal politics. He had conducted surveys on the political outlook of Malay Muslims between the 2018 and 2022 elections. His political commentaries are commonly found in English, Malay, and Chinese domestic and international media, including the Malay daily Sinar Haryan, for which he writes a weekly column. Mohammed Baharoun is the Director General of Dubai Public Policy Research Center, Bahus, established in uh, 2002 in Dubai, UAE. He perused a career in media as a reporter for Al Arabi magazine, Al Ittihad newspaper, and then editor for Gulf Defense magazine before starting as Director of Research at Bahus and focusing on the interplay between geostrategy and policymaking in governance, stability, capacity building, and future-proofing. Mohammed has also worked as deputy director of Watani, the UAE's first initiative on national identity, and is also a founding member of the board of Bussola Institute, a think tank in Brussels that focuses on the changing and emerging aspects of partnership between the EU and the GCC member states. As part of his interest in the emerging geostrategic space of the Arabian Peninsula, Mohammed looks at Iran as part of the development of the area as a major trade artery. Mohammed Baharoun has a master's degree in English literature from Texas Tech University in 1995 and an English major from Kuwait University in 1987. Mohammed Zulfika Rahmat is an academic from Indonesia whose research focuses on China-Indonesia Middle East relations. He spends his time between Indonesia and South Korea. He is assistant professor at the Department of International Relations, Universitas Islam Indonesia, and a research professor at Korea Institute for ASEAN Studies, Busan University of Foreign Studies. Beyond these two institutions, Mohammed is also a research affiliate at the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore and a research associate at Jakarta-based Institute for Development of Economics and Finance, INDEF. Since August 2022, he has served as an associate at IDEAS, the London School of Economics Foreign Policy Think Tank. In addition, he has also held visiting professor positions at Bina Nusantara University and Universitas Paramadina. Mohammed received a BA in International Affairs from Qatar University before completing an MA in International Politics and a PhD in Politics at the University of Manchester in the UK. After the introductions, I request our speakers to share their views on our topic in not more than 15 minutes. I first turn to Professor Wong. Professor, Malaysia has seen general elections recently with significant electoral gains for Partai Seistan Malaysia or PAS, 
identified with a conservative agenda. Is this the beginning of, or the end of the so-called green wave? Is religious conservatism here to stay in Malaysia? Will the coming local elections further enhance the trend? Thank the floor you, is Professor Jodjil Bustin, for inviting me to share my view with um, our distinguished co-panelists, uh, Dr. Muhammad Zulfika and Mr. Baharun. Uh, Ms. Shannon, may I may we start with my presentation? Thank you. Uh, okay. I will talk about the rise and sustenance of Muslim nationalism in Malaysia. I will touch what I mean by religious nationalism. I deliberately call it Muslim nationalism rather than Islamism, which sometimes may not be so narrowly confined about uh, the Ummah. Uh, then I look at the external and internal factors that lead to this lies. And at the end, I would look at, uh, ask the questions that whether uh, would what we see in the Gulf states be replicated in Malaysia. Now, this is what we mean by green wave. This is uh, a part, the western part of Malaysia, which control, which consists of 75% of parliamentary seats. That's the political centers of uh, the country. Uh, the two color, uh, as you can see, covering most of the constituency in the north and the east coast. That's represent the coalitions called National Alliance or PN, consisting of two parties, the Pan-Malaysia Islamic Party PAS and the other Malay Nationalist Party called Bersatu. PAS, for the first time in Malaysia history, is now the largest party with 43 seats in the 222-seat member parliament and is Partner Brasatu wins 31 seats. Together, they form a 74-seat block exactly one-third in the House. And they have been challenging the, the new coalition government led by Anwar Ibrahim, consisting of his multi-ethnic coalition, PH, the one in red color, and also uh, the old hegemonic coalition, and the one in blue, as well as smaller parties from the Borneo states of Sabah and Sarawak. In July or more likely August, six states currently governed by PAS and PH would go for their state elections. First time we would have some things close to the midterm in the American sense. And PN has vowed to win all the non the Malay majority seats. In other words, to deny uh, BN and to a large extent H, their Malay representative. So the idea here is to call into questions that Anwar Ibrahim's new government is a government rejected by the Malay Muslim. Now I want to go back to the to the color uh, to the phenomena called the green wave. Uh, the green, of course, refer to the iconic color of past. Does that? represents, symbolize religious conservatism as past has spent decades in building up its uh, school from kindergarten all the way to primary and secondary school. 
is it a success of PAS and PN in using TikTok to court the young voters? Is it just an overall rejections of corruptions? Because that was the main team used by PN and PH against BN that dominated the last pre-election government. Is it because of Amnus infighting? <clears throat> or is it because of Malay trust deficit in the multi-ethnic PH? Now, I want to go a little bit <clears throat> on talking what I mean by Muslim nationalism. I deliberately use this than uh, uh, the one earlier, instead of Islamism. Because in Malaysia, we do find uh, Islamists who are not Malay Muslim centric. They may be very conservative, but they may not they may not frame politics as uh, existential battle uh, between the Malay uh, between the Muslim and the non-Muslim. And so, if we think about what Muhammad Abdul talked about reform in Islam, that I in the West I see Islam but not Muslim. In the East I see Muslim but not Islam. There's a clear conceptual separation between the faith, the belief, and the believers. Now, uh, for nationalists, difference doesn't ex that distinction doesn't exist. So, for Muslim nationalism, it's not just before this. For for Muslim na nationalism, the key point is about that the Ummah is under threat. The Ummah is under threat, and the politics is manifested in two ways. One that non-Muslim is framed as an inexistential threat to Muslim. And also, on the other hand, is about social policing of Muslim. Uh, on the first point, that how uh, this framing of non-Muslim as a threat to Muslim led to the dismissal of secularism, liberalism, and so on. And on social policing of Muslim, that's go down against the liberals among the Muslim, uh, the feminist, LGBT, and so on. Now, on the left-hand side, I show you an important document in the past. This was from 1981 from past current president, Hadi Awang. It, this, is an, this is an extract from one of his religious summon. We say that we have to fight the BN, uh, then the government, because it preserved the colonial constitutions, the infidels law and the pre-Islamic rule. And uh, if we die in that fight, that means that we, we die as martyrs, we die for Islam. Now, on these external factors, this is what commonly, when we talk about that, people link it back to the Iranian revolutions that's in 1979. And what I show you just now was in 1981. They also talk about uh, the export of Wahhabism from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the other important factor is actually the occupations of Palestine. Because Malaysians feel, Malaysian Muslims feel very strongly about that, just like uh, Muslims in many other countries. They see this as a sign that how Muslims collectively are under threat. And that gives a lot of support uh, towards. Uh, so the, if I want to talk about internal factor. The first thing is, of course, modernization that most people know about. Uh, on the right hand side, I show you that this is um, some finding from the Peer Research Center Global Attitude Survey in spring 2015, uh, as many as 52% of uh, Malaysian Muslim thinks that the country law should strictly follow Quran. And you have another 17% who say that uh, they should follow the values and principle, but not strictly the text. But the next one, I would talk about uh, 
this this is a particular context in Malaysia. Now, the second factor that I think this is very important is about the Malay Muslim privileges. If you compare Malaysia and Indonesia, a lot of people would, uh, would think that, uh, and rightly so, that Malaysia is much more conservative, despite we share a lot of commonality in, in the civilization's uh, roots of the majority groups in both countries has to do with the Indian Mutiny in 1857 that caused the British colonies, colonial uh, rulers to decide that they want to minimize the disruption to the Malay community. And that lead, led to two things. One is that uh, they protect, uh, they wanted, they kept the Malays in the traditional sectors of agriculture and fishery and therefore causing them uh, economically backward. And that in a decades later, led to and uh, uh, led to NEP, uh, the new economic policy. Uh, that's the on the economic dimension. But the other part is that uh, to to minimize disruptions, the British strictly forbid Christians missionaries from uh, converting Muslim. So and going beyond that is consciously preserve all Malays as Muslim. So that's from the basis of Islamization later, the debate on that. Now, we in uh, Malaysia is one of the rare countries where uh, an, an ethnic groups, a majority ethnic groups is defined as constitution. We, <clears throat> that's because that in our Article 153 of the federal constitution, there's a special provision uh, for the Malays to cover their private status in public service, educations, and licensing for business. The idea is to help them to overcome their economic backwardness. To define that, then they have to define who the Malay is. So the definitions have four elements that you have to have an origin from Malay and Singapore. Uh, you have to profess Islam. You have to habitually speak Malay uh, and observe Malay custom. But for street Islamists, they don't of uh, Malay custom. For upper-class Malay, they probably speak better English than Malay. And uh, as, as we expanded, and we have a lot of Muslim from Sabah and Sarawak and, and outside Malaysia, people don't look at uh, the origins of Malay and Singapore anymore. So the only thing that tie Malays together is religion. And in the past, it was quite relaxed. But now this has become the way of uh, the basis of social control. Now, I mentioned about this new economic policy paradigm. The idea was to correct uh, historical uh, injustice or backwardness. Uh, after the riot, we had ethnic riot in 1969. So this was introduced to expand the Article 153 privileges to cover not just private sector environment, but uh, employment, but also the private sector uh, to go deeper into education quota, uh, stock equities, uh, ownership, home purchase, and so on. Now, in order to do this, you need a strong uh, demographic strength. So what happened over the year is Muslim expansion uh, by way of both proselytizing and also enfranchisements of Muslim from uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. But what happened at the same time is that there's an intra-Muslim divide. We have uh, Muslim who are obviously conservative uh, versus those who are uh, liberal. And this have some sort of class or language divide. Uh, not exact, not, not uh, strictly, but you do have some 
situations where more economically uh, competitive Malay Muslims are more open, more liberal, while those who are economically weakened, uh, some of them might be represented in either class and so on, tends to be more nationalist. And those who are uh, speaking English tends to be more exposed. And those from East, uh, Eastern states of Malaysia uh, are more open-minded. Now, that led to the fear that if Muslims were to remain divided, then they would not be able to sustain their privileged status. That leads to the intra-Muslim policing. My next slide actually talks about suppressed intra-Malay competitions, but most people often overlook this. It's not just about the history. It has much to do with our political system. If you look back in the 50s and the 60s, uh, the, the fault line within Malay politics uh, at that time, uh, foreign policy, whether you're pro or anti-Western language, uh, whether we want to highlight the use of Malay language, national language, economy, what later led to the NEP and so on. And religion is only one part of that. Uh, in, in, in immediately after the riot, there was a period of Malay unity between UMNO and PAS. However, after that, UMNO, uh, UMNO and PAS broke up in 1977. PAS were left, were left in the political wilderness, losing the states that have control. And they had to justify why they still need to succeed. They need to exist because they were already, uh, that, that Malay should be united and so on. So what happened is that PAS adopted a very harsh ideology, claiming that UMNO represented uh, uh, pseudo-independent countries and so on, what I have shown you earlier on. So to bring it forward until today, what we are seeing here is very much, I want to argue, that the consequence of suppressed intra-Malay competition, because we do not see the very diverse Malay Muslim populations have expressions on other fronts of their interests, for example, class, gender, age group, environmentalism, and so on. On the left-hand side, I show you a photos of uh, food delivery persons. And this is... Uh, noticeable phenomenon now in Malaysia because that's where young people get their jobs. Most of them are Malay Muslim. Who are, which party is fighting all the way uh, to enhance them? We are not seeing this very much here. The NEP has led to intra-Malay pluralism because that some people are richer, but on the other hand, the dependence of those poorer Malay Muslim has induced insecurity forcing that Malays to compete on, on their existential uh, fear or instincts. To change that, we probably need electoral system reform, parliamentary reform for the Malay parties to express different kind of interests. Right. So this is, go back to the questions. Uh, a, lot of liberals, a lot of liberals in Malaysia are looking at what happened in Saudi Arabia and UAE and say, well, you know, the Muslim here should just follow them. Now, the interesting things is that if Wahhabism has shaped Malaysia for the last 20, 30 years, you do not see, because there's a change in Riyadh, things are changing in Malaysia as well. What um, MBS liberalization, sorry, this uh, typo here, liberalization has caused confusion and anger, but not admirations and emulations. 
because Muslim nationalism is largely fueled by internal dynamics more than international trends, until Malay Muslims develop new and non-identity-based divides, and more Muslims become economically and psychologically secure, Muslim nationalism would remain popular. And if persists, however, the hung parliament that we have seen uh, in the last three years, that offer an opportunity to change track. Because uh, if the Malays Muslims uh, have to compete and they overcome their fear of competition, then we probably see a different picture. The last one. Now, Malay Mus uh, Mus uh, Muslim nationalism, so conservative uh, political Islam in Malaysia, is a very complex phenomenon. There are many uh, uh, ways to understand it. I do not argue what I offer here is a whole picture. We are probably just everyone looking at one part of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And what I want to argue is, what I want to offer is an institutionalist account that political incentive does shape our politics uh, and how people respond to it. As what Anthony Down say, parties formulate policy in order to win elections rather than win elections in order to formulate policy. So what we think about uh, the discourse and so on, a lot of these are adopted because there is a materialistic ground uh, for the articulations of the communal interest. Thank you so much. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor. Um, I uh, very much appreciate uh, uh, your uh, detailed and uh, highly interesting uh, description of um, the situation and the political struggle in Malaysia with a historic back, uh, uh, perspective. And you ended this with uh, the picture of what I think is the elephant in the room. And we will have to decide what, what that is amounting to. But uh, uh, on this note, and after uh, understanding from you uh, the role in the uh, Malaysian uh, political uh, struggle uh, just ahead of the local elections, let me uh, now uh, ask our uh, distinguished guest uh, panelists from uh, Indonesia uh, that in the run-up to the elections next year in Indonesia, which also sees the heating up of the political climate and uh, what I uh, tentatively call the conservative surge as being reflected yeah in the much debated penal code of the country uh, recently adopted. If he could give us a description of how he sees the process. The floor is yours, Mohamed Zulfikar. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Georgie. And uh, I want to greet uh, my uh, other panelists, uh, Mr. Mohamed Berhadun and Professor Chin. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity. And I would like to share my screen. So I title my presentation uh, as the Gulf Religious Diplomacy. Uh, although later I will explore uh, more about religious diplomacy carried out by the GCC countries in Indonesia, uh, perhaps in the beginning I would like to answer the the most uh, important question, which is, is Indonesia turning to conservatism? And then later on, I will 
and I will talk with the Gulf religious diplomacy and Indonesia's response. Why the last two topics is important because uh, by understanding the last two topics, then we can see the, the implication that, uh, uh, that uh, what's happening in Indonesia may have on the relationship between Indonesia and the Gulf or in the Western or with the Western Middle East. Uh, as Georgia has mentioned, the so-called morality laws or the penal code has, of course, raised the, the eyebrows of many people. And because when the law is implemented, premarital sex and cohabitation uh, by unmarried couple will be illegal. Offenders can be jailed up to one year. And then more importantly, Indonesian parents, children, or spouses can report alleged offenders to the police. And of course, this has raised many concerns that such profession will unfairly target domestic uh, LGBTQ communities, individual, not only unmarried uh, couple, and potentially even foreigner and tourists. And then what is also of concern is that all of the political parties unanimously agreed on uh, these laws. Now, the question is whether this uh, particular development is an indication of Indonesia turning into conservatism. But if you look at uh, the recent survey, the Indonesian National Survey Project, published end of last year by the Singapore-based uh, Institute uh, of Southeast Asian Studies, showed that Indonesian people actually remain moderate, secular, and multicultural in their outlook. For example, when they're asked whether Islam is compatible with the state ideology, uh, I can see that, of course, there is some kind of a growing conservatism in this regard, but my argument is that the majority of people, the majority of people still are, are remain to be moderate. Of course, for example, whether Islam is compatible with the state ideology, which is Fantasia, only 13% disagree. All right, and 61% people agreed that the government should dissolve Islamic organization that Indonesia and the Islamic Defenders Front. Indonesia Muslim majority has a Muslim majority. Most respondents believe that Indonesia is sacred. And maybe the thing that we can take from the surface that 50 over 50 percent agreed that when for election it was important to choose a Muslim leader and then meanwhile 36 percent believe that blasphemy against Islam must be punished more severely than than blasphemy against other religion however uh, 
relationship between Indonesia and the Gulf, or you can say Indonesia and the wider Middle East, whereby the relationship not only takes place in the political and economic spheres, but also in the religious, religious sector, or what I call to be religious diplomacy. Uh, one example, for example, this, I think, I think this is uh, uh, something that uh, people may already understand that given the said Islamic background of Indonesia and the GCC countries, uh, religious diplomacy has been an important aspect of the GCC state diplomacy towards Indonesia. Uh, one example is that Qatar the Mutawa diplomacy, whereby many of the imams and the religious scholars often carry out exchanges uh, between uh, Indonesia and Qatar. And then, and then we know that there is a growing, uh, not growing, but a long-standing promotion by Saudi Arabia uh, to promote Salafism. And we know that in Indonesia, we have the Lithia, the, the famous uh, institute for Islamic and Arabic sciences, which is uh, uh, owned and regulated by the embassy of Saudi Arabia. And then uh, the UAE has also uh, another uh, religious diplomacy in Indonesia. But when it comes to the UAE, I see that there is somehow a concept, a new concept, a new set concept being developed with this moderate Islam. And, and, and Pak Jokowi, our president, often meet with Sheikh Zayed. Uh, they, they want to cooperate in, in, in promoting this idea of, of moderate Islam. And then we also have the GCCA diplomacy. Uh, different aids are being dispersed by uh, the GCC countries in Indonesia. And then Bahrain Forum, which uh, has, I think, uh, late last year, and many of the Islamic scholars from Indonesia are also being invited uh, to, to, to this uh, Bahrain Forum. But the, I think the most important point is that, uh, and, and Sorry, before that, uh, the GCC countries actually trying to get in, uh, closer with Indonesia's Muslim organization. Uh, we have the Natal Ulama, which is, uh, you can say, the first, the biggest uh, Muslim organization. And this organization is mainly uh, calling for uh, moderate Islam and and the second one is Muhammadiyah, and uh, there have been a lot of frequent exchanges between this organization with Qatar, with Saudi, and the UAE. And then more importantly is, as I mentioned earlier, collaboration on promoting uh, moderate Islam, especially with the UAE. But what is interesting is that how uh, Indonesian actor responding to this new development. What I see is some kind of a pragmatic response because Nakhdatul Ulama, despite calling for moderate Islam, despite having 
strong relationship with the UAE does not mind to collaborate with Qatar on, on building mosques and hospitals. Many of the mosques uh, owned by the Nahdlatul Ulama are funded by the Catholic government or funded by the Qatar charity. And then at the same time, Nahdlatul Ulama also collaborated uh, with the Saudi control uh, Muslim World League, despite the fact that many of the leading figures in, in Nahdlatul Ulama often criticize the Islamic practices being carried out by the Salafis. And, and, and more importantly, Salafi has often criticized for, for introducing innovation in the religion. So despite of this, uh, uh, this organization is still uh, uh, trying to maintain a relationship with Qatar and and, and Saudi Arabia. And then when it comes to the government, number one, Salafism is seen by the government as non threat especially by the fact that in Salafism, we have a teaching called uh, uh, following the rulers, not criticizing the, the rulers. And this, you know, uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, uh, the failure of President Jokowi administration in responding to the pandemic has created many critics among the people, right? Many of the people have now lost trust to the, to the Jokowi administration. And yet, uh, President Jokowi, the government sees Salafism as a non-threat. In fact, many of the Salafi groups are often invited by the government to speak about uh, de-radicalization, to speak about respecting the government, and so on and so, and so forth. At the same time, however, the Indonesian government has also collaborated with the UAE in, in promoting the moderate Islam. So uh, this is quite, quite interesting. And Jokowi has also embraced Nahdlatul uh, Ulama push for a moderate Islam and at the same time willing to legitimize Saudi and Emirati effort aim at ensuring that moderation does not entail political liberalization. And, and, uh, and then at the same time, our uh, Party, one of the famous party, Party Adilan Sejata, which is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Indonesia, does not mind having a relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, uh, uh, and, and uh, in fact, many of the scholars within this party are, are uh, you know, uh, are members, despite the fact that they are members of Qatar based. Uh, International Union of Muslim Scholars, uh, uh, they still have a, a good relationship with Saudi Arabia. The, the, the question is why? Many people ask why. Why this complex relationship between the different parties in Indonesia responding to, to the GCC's diplomacy? Number one is 
adding pragmatism uh, uh, for them who brings money is more important. That's number one. And number two is that the organization stance is different from that member's stance. So even though PKS, for example, as a Muslim Brotherhood branch, has many uh, members who are a graduate of Saudi universities, and NU members, despite their moderate views, does not mean having a relationship with Qatar or with Saudi Arabia, because many of them have uh, 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 members who are graduate from Saudi universities or a Qatari university. So my main point is that although there is a growing trend towards conservatism, the majority of people in Indonesia still hold moderate view. And I believe the growing trend, however, will not have an impact on Indonesia GCC relationship. For two main factors. Number one is because the ties between Indonesia and GCC are mainly economic. And number two, the actors involved are mainly pragmatic. So we cannot say that the Salafi in Indonesia only have the relationship with Saudi or the or the PKS, which is a Muslim Brotherhood branch only have the relationship with Qatar and try to avoid the UAE or Saudi or Saudi Arabia, they don't mind. In fact, uh, when one interesting story is that when the UAE decided to establish a relationship with Israel, uh, we, uh, people asked one of the politicians from the PKS and he said that it's okay uh, for, for the UAE to have a uh, relationship with Israel, as long as we can maintain good relationship both uh, with the UAE, with the Emirati actor and with the Qatari actor. So I think that the actors in Indonesia are mainly pragmatic in responding to the growing uh, religious diplomacy carried out by the GCC countries. Thank you very much. I listen to George. Um, thank you much. Uh... Thank you very much, Mohamed Zulfiga. It was a hugely interesting and a very substantive um, resume of, uh, of the situation in Indonesia. I can't decide which is more complex, Malaysia or Indonesia. It is an interesting competition, but um, uh, I, I find it reassuring that uh, you say that there is no reason to cry wolf over uh, over Indonesia. Uh, uh, this and I'm. Uh, let me just ask uh, 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 Mohammed Baharun, looking at all this from the Gulf perspective, because we heard uh, the mention of, uh, uh, of, of Arabia, the Gulf countries, uh, in, uh, in many contexts. Uh, how do you feel about this? I mean, how do you see the reverberations and how do you see the impacts? The floor is yours. Uh, again, good afternoon uh, to all of you, uh, and good morning, of course. Uh, and thank you very much for the invitation and uh, to be in, in, in this position with uh, very uh, well-learned uh, scholars. Uh, two warnings. First, I'm not an expert uh, on South Asia, so do not expect me to uh, uh, elaborate a lot on what is happening inside Indonesia and Malaysia. And the second, I don't have a presentation. So please uh, bear with me as I try and elucidate 
uh, how things are seen. Uh, the major prism of this discussion is uh, a question whether there is a drive uh, for reform in the Gulf that is counter to a move towards entrenchment in, 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 in Southeast Asia. And uh, I would uh, start by saying that what we've seen in the Gulf, uh, particularly in the UAE, uh, now in Saudi Arabia, but also we've seen that before in, in Bahrain and other areas, is a move towards understanding where does those countries uh, uh, stand versus the universe. We are no longer regional countries. We are countries with a huge number of uh, uh, international, either visitors or residents, but also countries who have huge relationship, investment, uh, uh, trade, uh, education, uh, knowledge transfer with the world around us. So uh, looking at that from this prism uh, might explain what are we trying to do uh, with uh, uh, changing some of the laws that are uh, we're having. And of course, there is a contrast between, uh, let's say, the morality uh, uh, laws that uh, Dr. Mohammed just uh, uh, explained, and also the lowering of the roles in, in, uh, of, of the morality police in, uh, in Saudi Arabia or changing some of the uh, laws here in the UAE. There is a contrast. Does that contrast mean that there is a difference, there's an entrenchment? Maybe it is what uh, uh, Dr. Chen uh, sort of explained. It has more to do with the political scene. Uh, remember that this idea of uh, uh, either uh, uh, subscribing to a very conservative view of, of uh, Islam or, or a less conservative view towards uh, religion has to do with the concept of legitimacy. Where does the state or the country get its legitimacy from? If legitimacy is coming from identity and religion is very important to that identity, you will see either the governments or parties trying to uh, use that. Very recently, uh, those who have watched the coronation of King Charles III were reminded of the ointment and the role of the church in providing legitimacy to the, to the uh, monarch or the ruler in that, in that sense. Uh, those are uh, uh, very long traditions, still exist either uh, directly or indirectly. In many countries, you've seen a rise in, in the right-wing populist movements that uses threats to identity, being whether that threat is to religion or to uh, uh, race, that's why you'd see uh, xenophobia happening in, in certain parts of the world, or is it related to language? And we've seen uh, conflicts in, in between Ukraine and, and, and uh, Russia based on this uh, identity politics. Uh, people who speak a certain language or descend from a certain uh, uh, ethnicity. So uh, those aspects are being used as, uh, in, in countries where there are democracies, are being used as a way of getting electoral support 
from people by raising the threat to an identity. Therefore, that, that uh, form of, of uh, legitimacy is gained from the population. But there are on the other side, uh, practical uh, uh, areas. And that practical area is that if the uh, countries start to believe that our existence will require a lot of communication or I would call it connectivity with other countries, the ability for people to move freely, uh, to trade freely, then uh, one identity cannot overshadow the others or over government. And in this case, uh, uh, if let's say uh, Indonesia is thinking about uh, foreign investment, inviting more foreign investment, then you will find a problem over there in people trying to, uh, you know, implement uh, very strict morality codes based on, on a specific religion. When you're inviting people from other religion, this is exactly what is happening in Saudi Arabia. Part of the reform has to do with where Saudi Arabia sees itself, not regionally only, but globally. And part of that, it is inviting more people. So uh, in, in, in my view, it is not an issue of entrenchment or it's a, an, an issue of uh, uh, only identity. Uh, I think it is more of where do you stand in the world? What is your connections? Uh, how are you treating other people? In countries like the UAE, where the percentage of, of uh, foreign expats uh, is much bigger than the percentage of, of the nationals, uh, uh, those uh, policies of tolerance are becoming far more important. It is not about identity. We are not obliterating the identity of the country, but we're making sure that people sharing the same space, living next to each other, don't have uh, reason to fight over each other over their own identity. And it's based on respect. Now, having said that, uh, um, the uh, idea that Islam has spread in places like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia based on tolerance towards the Muslim travelers who came in makes tolerance a very integral idea in, 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 in the identity of these countries. If uh, people who were living in those islands uh, were not tolerant and refused those Muslim uh, uh, travelers and traders, you would not have seen Islam uh, uh, spread over there. And in my views, uh, uh, you can use identity, be it uh, ethnicity or religion, to win votes. But overall, for the whole health of the country, its relationship with, with its surrounding uh, and uh, its relationship with the world, uh, establishing a relationship based on respect for others, uh, their difference of ethnicity or of religion will become a very important area of, uh, of policy making. And, and, and in this case, I would also uh, point out that sometimes we read things or read too uh, far into, into certain things. And uh, Dr. Mohammed mentioned the, uh, the religious diplomacy. And of course, there is diplomacy in everything that you do, whether it's music or, or, or uh, you know, uh, Quran. Uh, but in, in, in my views, the, uh, for instance, the, the Quran uh, uh, competition here in the UAE has nothing uh, to do with, with diplomacy. It has more to do with about your identity and uh, the, the importance of Quran and your identity. But uh, this is not to say that 
because we are Muslims, because we believe in the Quran, that means all other religions are, are uh, you know, are not accurate, or all of those religions would be prosecuted because they are not Muslims. So we might, uh, uh, even the concept of pragmatism, uh, I mean, maybe there is a lot of reading of, of the conflict between Qatar and, and the UAE or Saudi Arabia into his reading of, of uh, pragmatism. I think there is a, a wider uh, uh, areas of people trying to affiliate to a certain uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, identity. In this case, it is Islam. Uh, and we've seen that in, with Sunni groups uh, affiliating, for instance, with, with Shia countries like Iran, uh, not because they are of the same mental, but because they think that defending Islam, the concept of, of, of Muqawama, uh, threads them more closely than the, the type of, of, of Islam, Sunni uh, or Shia or uh, Salafi or, or, or Rahman for in, in this case. So uh, I think what we have seen so far in, 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 the, in, in what is the GCC is doing is pretty much a, a way of trying to understand how do you relate to everyone else, other identities, and finding a way for those identities to, to coexist, cooperate rather than finding a way for them to, to compete. And in, in, in that sense, I would go back and say, uh, in, in, in places like Singapore, uh, we've seen that model uh, uh, flourish. Uh, in, in my view, it has flourished before that in places like Malaysia and, and, and Indonesia. And that was it allowed uh, uh, Islam to spread over there. That is the people uh, both in, in, in uh, Malaysia and in, in uh, Indonesia should be proud of that and use it as part of their own uh, national identity. And I will stop there for, for the sake of, uh, you know, addressing some of the, the, the point in discussion. Um, thank you very much, Mohammed. I, I was impressed by uh, your summary of uh, how this, what we have heard about, is being seen from the Gulf. And some of your remarks are very pertinent. And uh, uh, I let me say that what uh, gripped me most is your reference to tolerance and uh, uh, by way of tolerance, coexistence. If anything uh, should rub off on um, uh, Southeast Asia from uh, your part of the world, uh, this is the most important message. And many of us here living here would only wish that um, uh, the uh, sense Arabia, as it is referred to here, uh, should be able uh, this time to. Uh, send uh, a very positive message to Southeast Asia to facilitate uh, the uh, situation of those who are uh, identically thinking about coexistence and about tolerance and uh, wishing, uh, wishing away with uh, tangents in society, particularly at such a sensitive juncture. With this, I would open the floor for uh, our audience uh, to, um, to put their questions to uh, our, uh, our panelists. If, um, I wonder how many questions uh, arrived and if I, could, if I could see them. I beg your pardon for a moment. I'm in the process of, uh, of receiving uh, um, 
questions from uh, some of our participants. Apparently, there are some technicalities here which which are standing in our way. But uh, I I do have uh, a plethora of questions to ask, and I will take the opportunity to to be the first. Uh, my uh, main question is uh, this time to Professor Wong and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Mohamed Zulfikar in that order. Um, there was this uh, uh, very uh, interesting expression that took root uh, uh, in Southeast Asia called Arabization. I, I wonder whether this expression uh, has legitimacy still. Is it current and is it covering uh, what it was originally meant to cover? Uh, Professor Wong. Thank you. Uh, I think in Malaysian society, Muslim gen conservative Muslim generally has to what happened in uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the Gulf states. Uh, uh, and, but Arabization is more often, in my observation, used by the critics, the liberal critics, who feel very uncomfortable because that uh, the trend towards Arabizations is a narrow one. It's often uh, just the other name for uh, Wahhabisms or Salafisms and so on. And, and certainly we do not see a wider range of Arabizations that uh, look at, for example, uh, the more inclusive traditions for, from Liwans or Northern Africa. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, Mohammed Zulfikar on the same. All right, thank you. Uh, I agree with, with Professor Chin that the concept is usually uh, uh, too too narrow uh, uh, to be defined. Although, uh, you know, in the past it has been used as a as a way to define the influence of the of the Middle East. In, in the Indo-Malay world, uh, recently the concept has been used also to understand the the inter the bilateral interaction between uh, 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 the Gulf countries and the Malay and Malaysia or Indonesia or or Brunei or many other countries. So uh, I think depends on how the concept is being used. If the concept is being used to define uh, uh, the, the interaction between the Malay, Indonesian world and the Arabian Gulf, then uh, it is, I think it is still relevant today, or it is increasingly relevant given the fact that the relationship between the two are uh, increasingly apparent, especially in the economic field. But if we define the concept of appreciation in a very narrow way as the propagation of certain belief or certain view, then I think uh, the concept is 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 too uh, old to be used. That's my opinion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, uh, I appreciate uh, your explanation on this. And uh, frankly speaking, uh, uh, a question from uh, my colleague, uh, Mr. Clemens Chai. Um, we have been hearing about uh, the 
role, uh, important role of Mahabharat al-Ulama in Indonesia, uh, which has always been seen as a beacon of, um, uh, of the progressive interpretation of Islam. Uh, I don't want to elaborate more on this. The question is short. Um, what is the current position of uh, Mahdat Ulama in the midst of uh, uh, many of these controversies? If you could elaborate, Mohamed Zulfikar. Right. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to this organization, Mahdat Ulama, we have to differentiate within uh, the official standing, the official uh, uh, perception, and the uh, and the uh, you know the uh, members view on for example when it comes to the official uh, when it comes to Salafism for example the organization never ever have a stance on Salafism but rather the people and the leading figures in the organization who have some kind of, uh, uh, you know, they often criticize Salafism as a, as a, uh, you can, you know, as a, as a, a way uh, for uh, the Arab culture to destroy the Indonesian culture and so on and so forth. But the official stance of the Nahdlatul Ulama is that it always emphasizes the notion of religious moderation. Moderation and uh, the advocate of multi religious and pluralistic democracy and in a full and unconditional embrace of the universal declaration of, of human rights and, and the form of Islamic uh, uh, jurisprudence. So, uh, that is the official standing when it comes to the member standing. For example, many of the Nahdlatul Ulama's members are also members of PKS, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a party affiliated with the Muslim, with the, with the Muslim Brotherhood. And many of the Nahdlatul Ulama members are also uh, 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 Salafi. They believe in the, in this, you know, we can call it the Salafi way of uh, interpreting Islam and so on and so forth. So when it comes to the official uh, uh, standing, they are uh, close with the government because, in fact, the, the Jacobi government has used or has embraced Nahdlatul Ulama as a vehicle to present Indonesia as a leading figure in promoting moderate Islam. So that's uh, my answer. I hope. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. A question to Professor uh, Wong, uh, and this is uh, a bit sensitive. It's uh, the communal coexistence of the two uh, important uh, uh, constituent factors of Malaysia in terms of um, ethnicity. Um, is the uh, current uh, situation of DAP uh, a party that predominantly represents uh, Chinese Malaysians uh, in a coalition uh, which is uh, eventually, we cannot avoid saying that it's a coalition with uh, parties of political Islam. How is this uh, coexistence going to unfold? Uh, currently, that DAP is, uh, as part of PH, is 
cohabitating with BN, Amno and BN, and they have very few uh, overlap of constituency. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at collisions uh, in a system with first possible system, electoral system, then uh, parties with uh, uh, we are not, they are not competing for the same constituency, tends to easier to get along. But uh, DAP has had crashed with pass uh, for a long time, uh, not because they're competing from the same constituency, but rather because that they have very different idea of how Malaysia should become. And in this case, that pass is often the one who pushed for uh, uh, at, in, in the past, both sides wanted to make changes. But today, I would argue that DAP is actually uh, much more moderate. Or the DAP is going for incremental changes, uh, accepting that the reality you cannot do away the NEP paradigm in a short while. While parts in in being being corner at the end uh, would try to say that uh, muslims are under threat and uh, amno in the past played the same game when amno was in the last government amno also say that it would reject dap uh, but uh, clear minded observer can see that the two parties are amno and dap are willing to accept each other at some point so the the main challenge is actually about in the competition between Malay parties. And uh, it's, it's the competition between the Malay party that forced sometimes uh, some Malay parties to go more to, to go more radical. Uh, for example, that AMNO is attacking, sorry, PAS is attacking DAP now, mainly to discredit AMNO at this stage. Mm -hmm. To make the case that say, uh, yes. You know, uh, Amno is controlling the government, and uh, sorry, DAP is controlling the government, and therefore Amno has become uh, has become a tool to DAP. Thank you, thank you. Very interesting. A uh, question from the floor uh, to Mohammed Baharun. Uh, context of dialogue between uh, um, people who are fearful of uh, a threat to moderation, both in the Gulf and in Southeast Asia. Uh, the organization Hedaya has been playing an important role in combating extremism. Do you think that Hedaya can contribute to uh, similar endeavors in Southeast Asia? How, how do you see the current uh, 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 and prospects of Hedaya. Uh, thank you very much. Hedaya is also sharing uh, uh, practices, uh, experiences uh, with other uh, similar organization, be it here in the Gulf, but also with, with the US. Uh, so on, on, based on that, there is no uh, reason why that experience couldn't be shared. But I would also uh, emphasize that these are experiences and those experiences are governed by uh, the place, the people, the culture. So it would need to be very adaptive uh, to uh, uh, who you're talking to. Uh, the, there is no one uh, solution that would fit everyone. It's not a free size type of uh, organization. Uh, uh, 
the concept of de-radicalization uh, depends a lot on, on the cultural aspects, where people live, what social influence uh, uh, comes from, what does radicalization come from? Is it coming from religion? Does it come from discourse? Does it come from peer pressure? Uh, uh, is it political in nature? Is it economic in nature? So I think all of these issues uh, uh, need to be addressed, but definitely uh, uh, my understanding that uh, people at Hidai are very much open to sharing those experiences with others and trying to uh, uh, learn from, from uh, uh, other experiences as well. Thank you very much. Uh, if I may, uh, Your Excellency, uh, address this concept of Arabization. Because it's interesting, I, I was not aware of, of, uh, of the concept being uh, heavily used, but it's also similar to the West, the concept of westernization that we also hear. And it, it's a, a fear that other you know, cultures would come and encroach on, on, on ours. Uh, but at least from my point of view, uh, uh, two things come up. One, there is no view of countries uh, uh, like Malaysia or Indonesia uh, seen as satellite countries because of, of their religion. Uh, I don't think there is a view that those countries, because they're Muslim countries and because they're Muslims, they have to read the Quran. Because they read the Quran, they have to read it in Arabic. Then they are you know, a, a satellite countries to us. On the contrary, the view to those countries are economic. How big are those economies? To what extent can we relate to them? And maybe those ties can be enablers for a better economic, uh, at least from this part, I haven't seen an active uh, effort to Arabize uh, those, uh, those countries. And uh, that's why I just wanted to add that. Uh, Thank you. Just as an explanatory note, the expression dates back uh, probably to the late 1970s. And uh, it, it was at that time, I think mainly cultural and religious, it was void of a political content. But I think our, uh, our distinguished uh, uh, guests can uh, comment on that if, if, should, they, should they wish to add their voice. Um, I, I understand no. So I will, I will continue with another question to uh, Professor Professor Wong uh, from uh, our colleague Sharon, and this is uh, this is a difficult question. Actually, two questions together, um, asking about his prediction of what will happen in the state elections. I know it's a tall order, and uh, uh, relate turn out as predicted, uh, Professor. Professor, you should turn on sorry, your. Sorry, uh, I say oh, yeah, I, I missed yeah. the second part of the question. You say that yes, results... what, what we can infer if the results turn out as predicted. I see. Okay, right. I think uh, in general, people would expect the we have six states going into elections. Three states: Kelantan, Tengganu, and Kedah are now currently governed by PAS. Uh, the expectation is PAS will continue to win these three states, and there's a big chance that, uh, at least in Kelantan and Tengganu, that they're going to uh, wrest a lot of seats from UMNO. 
in other words, that these three states are likely going to be stronger uh, for PAS and PN. And, uh, and it, would, it would hurt UMNO, uh, but because it's sort of expected, UMNO has been in decline since. And uh, even that UMNO and PS joining forces together is unlikely to turn that around. Uh, although in Qatar, PH is putting more emphasis, partly to deflect the pressure on Selangor. So in the form, is attacking Qatar to protect Selangor. But overall, the expectation that is PN and PAS is going to win big, and that would not really uh, surprise anyone, and therefore would not have a would not have a shocking outcome. The real battlefield would be the three states under PH, that is Slango, Penang, and Agrisbilan. Uh, Penang, because of a strong non-Muslim population, and uh, it's expected that PH will retain this. Question here is whether PAS and PN can win all the Malay majority constituency. Uh, there's a chance of that. I would not say that's 100%. Uh, and Slango and the Greece Milan, there were questions that uh, past tried to frame that say there's a possibility for them to take this to state, especially Slango, because if they manage to take Slango, the federal government, Anwar Ibrahim, uh, I do not think that possibility is high, even though that uh, PAS and PN are putting a lot of uh, prominent figures, ex Amno to attack Slango. However, what might be uh, really to watch is whether Amno would be wiped out in Slango and Penang and badly damaged in the Greece and Bilan. If that happened, PN uh, can easily trigger a panic within Amno. So much so that some leaders in Amno would want to push the government towards the right to be more Malay Muslim nationalist, which would automatically naturally face resistance from PKR and DAP. And uh, if, if that strategy works, meaning that Amnu get panic, then uh, PN would keep on throwing out new topics, new issue, making claims that Malay Muslim are under threat and eventually come to the point that the government sinks into a paralysis and people get very tired. And at that point, PN can then trigger uh, some UMNO MPs to resign and stage by-elections and they win that for the weekend the government, making it harder for Anwar Ibrahim to sustain uh, his footer. The question here is one factor here is what would happen from now until elections? Uh, whether Amno uh, Anwar can actually frame it in a way that uh, people want stability. A second question is that, is, would the government do anything to make voting easier because turnout in state election tends to be very low. And if it's low- Well, thank you. I mean, uh, this is one more reason for us to fear for the stability of Malaysia after all the difficulties of uh, finally creating uh, what seemed to be a, a, a stable government. And uh, so uh, I think you and other 
political analysts will still have a lot of work ahead of you in the coming weeks. Uh, a question uh, from the floor to uh, Mohammed Baharoun. There was mention uh, in uh, several respects of what was called mosque diplomacy. And um, uh, evidently one very important uh, uh, development in this regard was uh, the visit uh, of President uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, to Indonesia, uh, where he uh, uh, has uh, handed over, or rather uh, inaugurated with President Jokowi, uh, uh, an important mosque in the city of Solo, which carries a lot of meaning to Indonesians. Uh, uh, and previously, mosque diplomacy had a certain, we cannot deny, had a certain uh, uh, po political flavor to it. But uh, how do you see uh, currently? Is there a, is, is there a, a wish in the Emirates uh, to continue helping what I believe are uh, perceived in the Emirates as, uh, as the moderate uh, or uh, rather the uh, Jokowi supported groups uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of Islam in Indonesia? Please. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, mosque diplomacy, I think you're referring to uh, UAE investment in building the mosque. And uh, I wonder if there are hospital diplomacy or school diplomacy or university diplomacy, because the UAE is doing the same in, in other places as well. Uh, so um, in, in my view, at least, it is not an active diplomacy that is there. However, uh, your point on uh, uh, what what is described or dubbed as moderate Islam, this is um, uh, the UAE does not have an Islamic center similar to Al Azhar uh, or to Umar Qara University. In our uh, uh, teaching, we've been uh, Islam is that this is a religion between you and God. Uh, it is the dominant religion in the UAE, or it is the religion of the country, but it does not prevent others from living based on their religions. That's why you've seen churches, temples being built around the UAE, not now, but since its inception. And uh, if that is what you describe as moderate Islam or what's the way he's trying to do, then that is absolutely right. But it is not, I think, in my view, an active diplomacy as such. The UAE is not building a mosque to try and promote a specific interpretation of Islam. It's building a mosque because that's what Malaysia wants. Thank you very much. It's important that uh, uh, you elucidated this point because the expression became rampant uh, in reference to uh, relations between the Gulf countries and uh, Southeast Asia. And I think uh, this was a uh, this this was a very important point that you referred to uh, different uh, branches of cooperation and development where uh, Gulf countries and most prominently, the UAE is, is play, playing a role. Uh, I think uh, because uh, sadly our our time is uh, needing its end, uh, I would want to uh, ask a favor from th the three of you. 
And uh, this is uh, the equivalent of summing up our uh, webinar. Uh, I have a question to you, and uh, this is uh, uh, about the topic of uh, our discussion, essentially. Do you think that um, um, the um, effect of Gulf reforms, uh, let me call them that, and I'm here referring uh, particularly to what uh, the UAE has accomplished in this respect, uh, the effect of the Gulf reforms will be uh, felt uh, in both Malaysia and Indonesia, and not necessarily just in the political process. The floor is yours. Please, if I may ask first, Professor Wong to uh, answer. Uh, thank you. I think it would be felt in a long, longer term, but not immediately uh, we, that we will see changes. The reason being that uh, there is a time lag, largely because of internal factor. Uh, Malaysian Muslims are very much still caught in this uh, overall framework of existential threat uh, because of uh, economic vulnerability and uh, that we have, also because that we have a winner-takes-all system and therefore making it very dangerous for you to lose power. And all these things make uh, religious conservatism or nationalism popular uh, or, or salient until uh, and, and would dominate that scene until and unless that this hung parliament were to persist and therefore uh, we have further reform in parliamentary uh, institutions and then later maybe electoral system to allow uh, the interests of Malay Muslim, the diverse interests of Malay Muslim to be articulated by more party on different dimensions, then we probably would see uh, the, the, the effect of Gulf states reform sinking in. For now, it would probably just cause many Muslims to rethink of, uh, of certain issues while feeling confused. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mohammed Zulfikar. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with Prof. 16 that, that uh, in the long term, it will have an impact when it comes to Indonesia because uh, a lot of people in Indonesia, when it comes to practicing Islam, they always look up to the Middle East. Oh, the Arab do this, so it's okay to do this. That's what often people uh, uh, say here in Indonesia. So as the relationship between Indonesia and the Gulf countries or the weather Middle East grow further, I think uh, what's happening in the, in the Middle East will increasingly uh, uh, have an impact on, on, on this region. Uh, but one thing that we have to understand as well is that it, it goes both ways. Uh, we spoke about Arabization, but now people are uh, also talking about Asianization of the Middle East. There is a new concept called uh, Asianization of the Middle East, even though the concept refers more with, with China's growing role in the Middle East, I think uh, uh, in the future, as, as, as the growing Asia 
becoming more important uh, in the global politics. I think uh, what's happening in, in Southeast Asia, in Asia in general, or in South Asia, East Asia in particular, will actually have an impact in the Middle East. Uh, uh, recently, I, I met with uh, one of the, I think everyone knows here, uh, Dr. Abdullah Babut. He, he mentioned a very important point that nowadays what happened in Europe does not really uh, have an impact on the Gulf or in the Middle East, but what happened in Asia have more impact on, on the Gulf. So I think it goes both ways that uh, what hap whatever happened in the Middle East will impact Southeast Asia and, and later on in the future what happened in the Southeast Asia may impact, you know, whatever happened in the Middle East. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Mohamed Baharoun, your closing words, please. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I, I would agree this is not a switch. Uh, it starts somewhere, goes uh, everywhere. I'll remind you that uh, even inside the UAE, there are emirates where you can have a license to sell alcohol and there are emirates where you cannot. So it is not, uh, you know, something that would happen. But uh, the the reasons why those reforms happened here in this region have to do with globalization, have to do with uh, uh, the aspirations of the younger generation, has to do with uh, uh, expanding economic ties across uh, the board, which are, uh, you know, situation and circumstances that would face all Asian countries, and therefore. Uh, they will arrive to the same conclusion, which is the stability, the connectivity will require those types of reforms, and therefore it will happen. When, how long? The only thing that I would warn again is using something that is related to identity, be it ethnicity or Islam, as a political currency. That is the most dangerous thing, and that is I, why I personally uh, have uh, a lot of reservation when it comes to political Islam because it is using Islam as a political uh, currency. And I think this is uh, a problem. This is the nature of, of the beast when it comes to democracies, but it also requires a lot of awareness from the population uh, themselves, the, elect the people who actually go to the ballot and elect. Well, thank you very much. I think this is a very adequate message to end our webinar today. And what remains for me is, of course, just first to thank all of you for joining in our distinguished panelists, if I may call you that, and our audience. And uh, uh, I, I really wish that we can continue this hugely interesting conversation, especially in the light of many events which are intriguing coming up and uh, touching up on us uh, in equal measure. And one of them is, of course, the weekend that election in, uh, the, in, in in Turkey, which will affect uh, uh, not only Europe, but also the Middle East and, in a sense, Southeast Asia. I, again, uh, reiterate my thanks and appreciation for you to have, uh, to have joined this webinar and um, uh, given us your thoughts. And uh, I personally benefited and learned a lot from your wisdom. And uh, once again, I, I hope that this nexus, which has gone back for centuries between uh, the Arabian Peninsula and uh, Southeast Asia, 
uh, will be a source of inspiration for both sides. And uh, it will be uh, a give and take to the benefit of the people of both regions. Thank you very much. And with this, I say goodbye. Thank you. Salaamu Alaikum. <laughs>